Well, let me just add my greeting. So glad that you're here. Glad we can worship together as a uh, church family. Pastor Sterling uh, sends his greetings. He's over at our Kesslinger campus preaching over there. Uh, that service starts in 15 minutes if you want to head that way. <laughs> just kidding. That would deeply hurt my feelings. <laughs> uh, but no, we're glad that we can be together as uh, the Mill Creek campus on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, a few things I want to share with you before we open up God's Word together. Uh, we are two weeks away from our next Connection lunch, November 5th, right after the second service. Uh, we will gather here in this room, bring a bunch of tables and chairs in, and uh, just share a meal together. We love doing this. We do this periodically throughout the year. Uh, and there's just so much value to, to sharing a meal, to uh, sitting around a table, to meeting someone new, to building relationships deeper and deeper. We know that's uh, just a really central part of what we believe the church is about, what God has called us to. And so it's always a fun time when we get to do that, and we would love for you to be a part of it. Uh, you can register if you have not done so already. Uh, we have sign-up sheets out at our uh, coffee bar and our welcome desk in the kids' check-in area. Uh, you can also do so online. You can use the QR code in the seat back in front of you. This helps us just as we plan for food uh, and what to prepare for, and so we would greatly appreciate it if you're planning on coming, if you could register for that. There's also an option uh, to bring a dessert. If you have a really good pie or other dessert, I guess, it feels like it's pie weather, uh, but you're welcome to do that. You're not obligated to come either way, uh, but you're welcome to join us in that way. Uh, a couple other things just to mention, make sure are on your radar, men. Uh, our next Chapel Street men event is coming up on November 11th called On the Mark. Uh, we are going to be gathering on uh, Saturday, uh, that Saturday on, on the 11th, and we're going to be throwing uh, axes and shooting crossbows. It's going to be great. Uh, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. You can register. There's early bird pricing, I believe, through October 27th. Uh, and if you know someone that might be interested in joining you, uh, this is something that we think is not just for us, but for, for friends, neighbors, whoever it may be, and so we hope to see you there as well. Uh, last week, if you were here, Pastor Sterling mentioned this, uh, that for the month of November, we're going to be starting uh, just a month-long initiative called Neighboring November. Uh, this is something that uh, we're really excited about, that, that we believe is part of our calling as a church, that we're not just here for ourselves, not just here for each other, but we're here for our communities that God has called us to be a church that is a blessing to our neighbors, to our coworkers, uh, to the places in which we live. And so uh, throughout the month, uh, you are going to be uh, hearing about this. And what our, we're going to try to do is to equip you, uh, to give you resources, and to inspire and encourage you uh, to just tangibly, practically love uh, one of your physical neighbors, someone that you live near, that you interact with, someone in your life. Uh, as you walked in today, you might have gotten one of those cards uh, that uh, says chapel on your street. On the back, there's a chili packet attached to it. If you didn't, you can grab it on the way out. Uh, but this is something that we are uh, just giving out as we approach uh, Halloween, as you will have an opportunity to meet neighbors, to see people that you may not always see and, and probably won't once winter hits and we all huddle up for the cold weather. Uh, and so just practical ways just to, to be a light in your neighborhood. Uh, to uh, prepare a pot of chili. Maybe you want to get your own materials, that's fine. Uh, but just a simple way to get you thinking about how is it that I can love my neighbors. And so, again, you're going to be hearing about this a lot more in the coming weeks, but I want to encourage each of us to just consider, is there a neighbor, is there someone in my life that I can serve, that I can encourage, that I can love, that I can show the heart of Jesus? Uh, so, like I said, you're going to be hearing more about that. We're excited about it. Let's pray, and then we'll open up God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and we're grateful for this time. We're grateful for your goodness. 
we're grateful for your mercy. Lord, as we just sang, we praise you that your mercy is more. More than our sin, more than our shortcomings, more than our doubts, Lord, that you are with us in each and every day. So be with us now. Encourage us in your word. Speak to us, challenge us, convict us. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Um, I'm curious, just by a show of hands, how many of you have watched or are familiar with the Netflix TV show, Is It Cake? Anybody? A handful of us? Uh, If you're not, I don't blame you, uh, because it sounds kind of made up. I promise you this is a real show. And on this show, uh, contestants come in, and they are given a real-life object, and their goal is to make a look-alike of that object using only cake. And judges will come in, and and the judges are presented with the the real object and the look-alike, and their goal is to answer a very important question. Is it cake? So I brought with me an example. Uh, Would you believe me that one of these is entirely made out of cake? Would you believe me that I don't remember which one? I don't know. Four? I don't know. Anyways, doesn't matter. I don't think I can think of a worse idea for a TV show. I think we have gotten to the point where we have run out of ideas, we have out-entertained ourselves. I actually read a review about this show that said that this TV show is a new low for humanity. (laughs) And at the same time, I love this show so much. (laughs) Judy and I, we recently started watching it, and we got hooked immediately. There is nothing as exciting as guessing cake apart from real-life objects. If that ever becomes a real skill, we are set, we are good to go. But that has been what's on my mind this week as we continue in our series in the book of James. We've been learning this the last couple weeks of this series that faith in Jesus, according to James, the Christian life is not something simply to be heard, but something to be lived. That we are not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of what it says. That unlike the world, the church is not a place to play favorites. That this is to be a place and that we are to be a people where everyone belongs and everyone is valued no matter what wealth or influence or gifts or talents you bring. That we are to be marked by mercy knowing that God has been merciful to us. So today our text dives right back into that idea. Some scholars, by the way, have referred to the passage that we're going to be studying today as the most controversial in the entire New Testament. So it's going to be fun. What we're going to see, though, is James asks two crucial questions, and his purpose in asking these questions is why that silly show has been stuck in my head all week. Because James is going to ask these questions, and in doing so, he's going to cut open our faith. To ask us to consider, is this thing real, or does it simply look the part? So, James chapter 2 is where we're going to be living today. Uh, And let me just read the first verse, verse 14 of our time. He asks these questions. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? What James is doing here is he's asking us to consider, to examine a faith that claims to believe in Jesus but does not show it in its works, forcing us to ask ourselves, is that faith even real? This is why I love James. He answers his own question three times. Let me show this to you. Verse 17, 20, and 26. In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, 
is dead by itself. 20. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's James telling us? What good is this type of faith? No good. Can it save you? No. Is this faith, then, even the real thing? No. This is the argument that he's making. To make his point, he's going to show us uh, three different mindsets, three different ways that we can think about our relationship with Jesus. We see faith without works versus works and and works. We'll start first with what it means to have faith without works. Let's look again at James chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Earlier this week, I was uh, leaving my house to go to work. I had an early meeting, uh, and you ever leave the house, you're like kind of still waking up. That's where I was at, and uh, it, it was, like I said, early in the morning, and I was leaving my house, and we live in a court, and so I was turning left out of my court, and as I was turning left, I noticed that on my right, uh, one of my neighbors seemed to be having some issue with his car. He was, he was pushing his car out of the driveway, and he was trying to push it to the side of the road. And by the time my brain processed what had happened, I was already kind of well down the street. Uh, and immediately, my brain came up with all of these reasons why it was okay that I wasn't going to help him. I was going to run late. I was tired. It was out of my way. I'm not that strong. And then immediately, I remembered what I was preaching on this week. <laughs> and so I had this little internal debate at 7 a.m., and I felt this conviction, and, and eventually I, I finally turned around. I was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. And by the time I got there, he was already gone. His car was parked. He must have gone back inside, and I just felt this disappointment of this missed opportunity. It happened again on Friday. Uh, I was literally writing this sermon, uh, and our Shepherd's Heart ministry got a big delivery from Costco or something, and they were going around our office asking if people could come help. And my first reaction was, I'm too busy writing about good works to do good works. (laughs) I went, by the way. This is kind of the tension I've been living in, though, this week. I don't know about you. uh, This passage, when you read it, it's not easy, is it? James writes this in such a black and white way. Isn't it easy to read this and think, man, I better be good enough for God? If I want to be right with God, if I want to have favor with him, then I better do enough good things, shouldn't I? Not only that, doesn't it seem like this passage is contradicting other parts of the Bible? We read this, and then we think of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. We read that, that he says that you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. What do we make of this? How do we reconcile these two things that kind of seem like they're saying the exact opposite way to be right with God? 
First, we remember who these words were written to. Paul, most often, uh, when he writes, is writing to, to non-Jewish Christians, what the Bible calls Gentiles, many of whom were being told that to be a Christian, you have to adopt a, a Jewish lifestyle, that certain foods became unclean, that certain customs had to be adopted. There were some that said that if you wanted to be saved, you had to be circumcised. There were all of these things. This is the world that Paul is writing, and notice his response in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 6, he says that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. In other words, for Paul, being right with God comes down to this. Do you have faith in Jesus? And does that faith work itself out in acts of love? James, on the other hand, was writing to uh, Jewish men and women who had become Christians, and his message is that being right with God is not something that you can earn simply by your status. It's not tradition. It's not about your background. It's about having true, real faith, and real faith works itself out in good works of love. They're saying the same thing from different perspectives, emphasizing different things, and speaking to different audience. But this is so important that we see this as we dive into this passage, because so often we get this idea confused, and Christianity becomes nothing more than a burden for us to carry. For many of us, that's what faith was when we were growing up, and and maybe it's what faith is for you today. But it is not the message of Jesus. James is not saying that good works are a prerequisite to faith. That is a game that nobody can win. Rather, he's saying that they are a production of it, that true faith produces a changed heart, and a changed heart loves to do what is good. Martin Luther put it this way. He says that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. If you are saved, if you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, if you truly know in the deepest part of your heart and soul the love of God, then that will always impact the way that you love your neighbor. The clearest evidence that you have been saved is not simply what you know, it is what you do. It's the way that you obey what James called the royal law back in verse 8. We looked at this last week that We would love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, I'm curious, just by a show of hands, has anybody gone apple picking this fall at Kuiper's or anywhere else? A few of us. Picture for just a moment uh, an apple tree that year after year produces no apples. No leaves, it's just a tree with some branches. If that happened year after year, what would we say about that tree? We'd say that that it's dead. That there must be some issue, the roots are dead, there are no nutrients around, there's something happening underneath where the life of this tree is not happening. Why? How would we know? We can't see what's underneath, but we can see what's being produced, or rather, what's not being produced. It's not that the apples are the source of this tree's life. The solution to fix this tree is not to staple a bunch of apples up and call it good but rather it's that apples are the natural production of a living apple tree. 
It's the easiest way to tell that that tree actually is an apple tree. And this is what James is saying about faith, that works are not the source of your life with Jesus. Faith is. But this is his argument, not that works brings us salvation, but that true faith is made evident, not just in what we believe, but what we produce. We are saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It produces a heart that loves God and loves neighbor. Jesus says this in John 13, that by this, the world will know who we belong to. By what? Not what we No, not what we think, but what we do. How we love one another. I love the way that uh, Tony Evans, who's a, a pastor in Dallas, puts it. He says that if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? When people look at your life, my life, what fruit do they see? What's being produced year after year? If no good works are being produced, if our lives are not rooted in love of God that leads to love of neighbor, then perhaps there is an issue going on underneath the surface. This is James' illustration. He points us to in verses uh, 15 and 16 of this person coming to us in need. He's not doing this to scare us, not to convince us that because I didn't help my neighbor push his car that one time that my salvation is at stake. But rather, he's asking us a question about our faith. What good is it? What good is my faith for the people in my life, in my church, in the community around me? As I look at my heart, do I see myself growing in compassion empathy, understanding? Do I fulfill the royal law in the way that I live? This is why we encourage you to serve. This is why we do things like neighboring November. It's not so that we feel good about ourselves and we can check something off our Christian to-do list. No, this is who we are. This is what we produce when we know the love of God. This is the Christian life according to to James, that I've surrendered my life to him, and because of that, he is transforming my heart, and because of that, I love more and more. My coworkers, my classmates, my community, my family, it is clear, not by what I think, but how I live and how I love. This is James' first point, that faith without works is dead. We'll move on. And look at the second mindset of faith. Faith versus works. Uh, Back when I was uh, in college, I got into this terrible habit of putting everything off until the very last minute. We would have this uh, at the beginning of uh, every semester. You know, professors would come to us and they would say, you know, if you want to do well in my class, you can't put everything off. You have to work ahead. And I took that as a challenge to prove them wrong. (laughs) And every semester we would get to this point where I knew with absolute certainty that I should be working on my schoolwork, that I should be studying for a test or writing a paper or whatever it is. I knew that to be true. Do you ever get to that point where you just have like so much to do and you're just like so overwhelmed, you just do none of it? That would happen to me like once a week and I would just go to sleep and pretend everything was okay. 
But this is the point that James is about to make, that knowing something is true, knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge is good, it's important, it's necessary, but it is not what saves. That true faith takes what it knows and it responds rightly, it acts it out. True faith lives in a way that makes the love of God evident. Look with me to these next two verses. Verse 18, James says this, that someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Now, James here has uh, just referenced something that his original audience would have picked up on immediately, and it's important that we see this as well. So James writes this. He says that, that you believe God is one. Good, which I think that good is him being a little bit snarky, and uh, I like when the Bible is sarcastic. It really speaks to me. It's like, oh, good for you. That's how I read it. Uh, but what he's doing here when he says that God is one is he's referencing what was called the Shema. That's the, the Hebrew word for hear or for listen. And it comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And for the Jewish people, this verse became their mantra. It was something that they would uh, recite every morning and every e- evening. Uh, and some actually still do today. It's kind of the foundation of their prayer life. Some of us, we recited the Lord's Prayer every day. Some of us might still do that. That's great. This was kind of their version of that. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, listen, Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus, when asked the greatest commandment, references this verse, love God, love neighbor. And so James here is picking up on that. He says that, that simply knowing the right words, being able to recite scripture, acknowledging the existence of the one true God is not the same as faith. Why? Because even the demons know that. And they shudder. We see this throughout Jesus' uh, ministry. My favorite uh, story that kind of depicts this is in Matthew chapter 8. Let me read this to you. When he, Jesus, had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him. Send us into the herd of pigs. Now, this is going to sound weird coming from a pastor in a church, but look at all the things that the demons got right. They recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God. They recognize that a time is coming where Jesus will defeat them. They recognize his authority, that, that he can put them wherever he wants to go, that he is greater, that he is stronger. These demons, their theology isn't bad. And yet simply having the right knowledge and knowing there is a God and even knowing who Jesus is clearly is not enough. That this is a type of faith that according to James is useless. It's possible for us to know all the right answers say all the right words, 
to quote scripture, to come to church, to sing the songs, to be a part of the programs. It's possible to do all that and for none of it to impact your heart and for none of it to be real. Especially for those of us that grew up going to church, where we know how to play the part. Again, the point of this is not to scare you. I'm not trying to convince anyone that your faith is not real, because the truth is that if that is you, you already know that something is missing. But this is the thing that we have to wrestle through in this text, that according to James, this type of faith, a faith that is not rooted in love of God, a faith that does not express itself in works of love, a faith that simply knows there is a God and goes no further, is a faith that God is not interested in. The question that each of us has to answer is not simply, does God exist? But rather, have I trusted him to be my savior, and am I surrendered to him as Lord? This is the burden that I feel uh, as one of your pastors today. That if that is you, if this is an act, or if this is a intellectual pursuit or a curiosity or that you would know that there's something so much more that God wants for you. Paul says in Romans 10 that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved not by our good works but for good works. That in Christ there is so much joy, freedom, belonging, purpose, calling, that there is so much love that God has for you, and this is his desire, a life spent growing in our love of God, in our love of neighbor, not to earn anything, not out of obligation, but in a joyful response of what we've been shown. This is the argument that James is building, that faith without works is dead, that knowledge without love is useless. And then finally, we see his conclusion as we look at faith and works together. James 2, verse 20. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and, it, God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. I love that. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay, so James here, he's driving his argument home, and he points uh, to two people, and again, his original audience would have known these stories just deeply. They, be, they would have been so familiar with Abraham and with Rahab and what God did through them, and, and what he does is he asks two questions of their stories and two questions of our story. He points to them, and he says, did these people have faith? And how do you know? Did they have faith? How do you know? We see this in Abraham's story. James quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
God had come to him and told him that even though he and his wife were well past the age, they would have a child. And not only that, that child would raise a family, and that family would become a nation, and God would use that nation to bless all nations. And we know that from that nation, a Savior was born that changed history forever. Did Abraham have faith? Yes. How do we know? According to James, not just from what he believed, but also how he lived. That Abraham trusted and obeyed God, even when God asked him to give up that very child that was promised all those years ago. It's this uncomfortable and and kind of to us horrifying story that we see. But the point is that Abraham lived as if God would keep his promises. And he did. Then Rahab, the pagan prostitute living in Jericho, she hears of this group of slaves that were freed from Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. This God that led them through the wilderness, that sent spies into her city, and by God's will, she meets these spies. And this is what she says. Joshua uh, chapter 2 tells us the story. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Did Rahab have faith? Yes. How do we know? Not just what she said, but what she did. That she risked her life. And she risked her family's life to protect and hide these men. And then God protected her when Jericho fell, and she was justified and remembered and honored as one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. This is the point that James is making here. Look again with me to verse uh, 22. He says, you see that faith was active together with his works. That's Abraham. And by works, faith was made complete. That phrase, uh, active together in the Greek, it's the word where we get our word synergy from. It's synergeho. And so the idea is that faith and works are supposed to be partners, that they're supposed to go hand in hand together, that faith for Abraham and for Rahab and for us is a faith that recognizes who God is and then responds in trust, in obedience, and in love. One of my favorite things to do uh, when I read the Gospels uh, is I try to always notice whenever somebody seems to impress Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool to be in the Bible as someone who made Jesus stop and go, wow? We see one of these stories in uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. It's one of the least likely people to uh, impress Jesus. It was a Roman centurion, an officer in the Roman army. Part of the people, his job literally was to oppress the Jewish people. He was someone that everyone was expecting Jesus to overthrow and defeat in battle. And one day we're told that this man of all people comes to Jesus and pleads with him to save one of his servants, telling him that he knows that Jesus has authority and that all he needs to do is say the word and he will be saved. Look at how Jesus responds. Look at verse 10. It says, hearing this, Jesus was amazed. That word amazed literally means marveled. 
He marveled at him. He admired this man's faith. He says to those, around, to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Why is that? Why was this man's faith so different? Because faith isn't about your background, your status. It's not about the mistakes you've made in the past. It's not about knowledge or intellect or the things that you can learn. This man did what true active faith does. He recognized who Jesus was. That he was dealing with God himself. And he responded in humility and in trust and in reverence and in obedience, he began his faith journey the same way that you began yours and I began mine by crying out to God's saving power. And we're told that in that moment, Jesus healed the servant immediately. Thinking about that story, uh, this has been the question in my head, and this is the question I'll leave you with. If Jesus saw my faith, if he saw yours. If he cut us open like that silly, addicting show about cake. What would he see? Would he see an anxious mind set on proving itself, somehow earning God's love through doing enough good to outweigh my bad and, and it just never ends? Would he see a sense of apathy, complacency, Someone that needs to be reminded of this great call that we have been given. Or would he see a humble heart, grateful for the grace and mercy of Jesus, committed to love of God and love of neighbor, a friend of God? This is what God longs for in your life and in mine more than anything else. It's why he sent his son into the world, why he offers abundant grace. Look again at Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at these first two verses that you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then look at verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. If today your faith has been put in Christ, this is true of you, that you are God's workmanship, that you have been created, saved, redeemed, and called to do good in the world. This is the type of faith that we're called to today, a faith that transforms your heart and moves your hands closer to those in need. A faith that shows itself not just in what it knows, but what it does. A faith not saved by good works, but for good works. A faith that loves, forgives, serves, and gives to those around it, because I have been loved, forgiven, served, and given the perfect gift of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to you in prayer. We're grateful for the opportunity. Lord, we are grateful for your grace that you give to us each and every day. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, that we don't have to earn your love, that it is freely given. We also thank you that you have called us to something so much more. Lord, that you've given us purpose. 
that you've invited us to be salt and light in a world in need of both. Lord, I pray for those that struggle with this idea of being enough for you. Lord, would you free them from that lie? Lord, for those that need to be reminded of the work there is to be done, would you give us new passion, a new heart for those that are in need? Help us now. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, as always, if we can be praying for you, anything going on in your life, uh, our prayer team will be up at the front here, and, and it's a joy to do that, to walk through life together. Receive now today's benediction. Would you go in the name and the grace and the mercy of a God who loves you, secure as his workmanship, called to do great work. Amen.